0: Welcome to episode 86 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine.
1: And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the Associate Editor at the magazine. And as promised last week, we're going to do what we love doing best on this podcast, which is discovering those hidden gems of museums that are loved by those in the know, but which deserve a much wider audience. Just before we went off air for the summer, it was announced that the Art Fund Museum of the Year was the Horniman Museum in Forest Hill, South East London. With the award came £100,000, the biggest museum prize in the world. Ed knows the Horniman, but to my shame, I'd never been, but went a couple of weekends ago and can honestly say I was utterly charmed by it not just for the beauty of the gardens and the quirkiness of its collections but for its ability to engage children. We're all so used to seeing children lope rather glumly after their parents but here they were enthusiastically participating in absolutely everything and it really was a joy to see.
0: Now it's not a surprise that Charlotte has never been to the Horniman because she is of course a cultural vacuum but luckily our listeners are not cultural vacuums and I'm sure all of you listeners have been to the Horniman, but just on the off chance that, say, some of the old b ladies haven't been, we are lucky to be joined by Dr. Nick Merriman. He's been the chief executive and director of content for the Horniman since 2018. Unusual job title, though. We might explore that. He's super qualified to take on the role, having been director of the Manchester Museum since 2006. He oversaw its refurbishment, increased visitors' numbers to almost half a million a year. He's an expert on museum studies. He was chair of the International Council of Museums from 2001 to 2004, chair of the University Museums Group and has many other illustrious appointments, which I won't go on about because we could be here all day. Welcome, Nick. Welcome. Hello. Hi. Good to be here.
1: Well, good morning, Nick. And it is an absolute delight to have you with us. And we're dying to know, first of all, what tempted you to take on this glorious museum with its very positive attitude. So before describing it to our listeners, tell us what attracted it to you in the first place and the changes you made to gain this very valuable art fund prize.
2: Uh, Sure, yes. Well, as Ed said, I'd done about 12 years at Manchester Museum and had refurbished all of the galleries, transformed the audience so it was pretty well representative of the greater Manchester population and got the funding in place for a new capital programme. So I was kind of looking for uh, another challenge. And when the Horniman came up, it was a kind of easy move in that the collections are similar to that of Manchester Museum in the sense that they're global nature and culture. But the Horniman has the additional attraction of 16 acres of wonderful gardens, a live animal collection, including a a wonderful aquarium, fantastic views of central London. And it was (laughs) was also prompted by the fact that my my wife, who, who was working in Manchester, Uh, running the Whitworth Art Gallery and Manchester Art Gallery, had got the job as director of Tate. Um, So I wanted to, uh, at the same time, see if I could find a job in London as well. So, And I succeeded Dame Janet Wittmeyer, who'd uh, been long-standing director of the Horniman had completely transformed it and got visitor numbers up to almost a million, uh, incredibly. But I had the advantage, I suppose, of coming with a fresh pair of eyes. One of the things I identified was that The huge growth in numbers of people visiting the Horniman had been accompanied actually by a loss of diversity. So in other words, about 20 years ago, when it had about 200,000 visitors a year, it was a much more diverse uh, group of people coming. And partly in the intervening years, the uh, Forest Hill itself had transformed and become more gentrified. The Horniman's offer was essentially much more focused on a very um, willing middle-class audience but as a publicly funded museum, we really feel that we, we need to be attractive to all. So the big challenge was to diversify the visitors to the Horniman. And essentially, that's what we've d- tried to do over the last four years. And the detail of that is what led us to winning the Art Fund Prize.
1: Well, I mean, you've certainly done that. And, and there's a very good exhibition on at the moment. Well, I think it might just be going off, actually, about hair. which what? was a fa- Yes, it was a fantastic way of looking at, at different cultures tell us a bit about that one
0: what hair
2: on your head
1: yes
2: (laughs) or indeed off your head i mean just going back to the reason for doing it we we wanted to as i say appeal to a much wider uh, range of audiences and we introduced a new strand of exhibition making focused on issues and on our collections which we hope would be attractive to wider audiences And we'd sort of cast around inside the museum for ideas and somebody in our events team actually said, well, what about an exhibition on hair? Because, of course, hair is universal, even if you've lost your hair, you had hair at some point. And, of course, London being London, the world's expert in the international hair trade is down the road at Goldsmiths University. And did you know that the international trade in hair is worth over a billion dollars a year? And it stems a lot for young women in India with long, dark hair, cutting their hair off and giving it as offerings to the temple. Temples then selling them to be made into wigs all around the world. And a lot of those wigs ending up in shops, in barber shops and hair salons in in South London. And we actually have in our anthropology collections quite a lot of objects made from hair. So the exhibition was looked at hair as a material, as a sort of cash crop taken off our heads. Uh, and all the different uses hair is is put to so there was stories of wigs made for children who've been suffering from cancer and so on there was um, afro hair stories about discrimination about curly hair in schools and so on. So a lot of it was made together with different uh, interest groups. And actually it was um, incredibly successful. We had about uh, 50,000 people visit the exhibition over the course of its run. It was a much more diverse audience than we normally get, with many of the uh, people coming especially to see it who'd never visited the ornament before. We also set up actually a touring exhibitions uh, group because we felt that so many museums spend a huge amount of resources on putting together temporary exhibitions, which then close and are dismantled. And we said, surely, in these straitened times, much better for museums to combine their resources and tour exhibitions amongst themselves. So we set up a thing called Magnet, the Museum and Galleries Network for Exhibition Touring, which is a partnership of 12 museums across the country. And the Hare exhibition is now going to Tully House in Carlisle, and then to the Western Park Museum in Sheffield.
1: And the other thing you've championed very much is recognising how massive an issue climate change is.
2: Yes, absolutely. Again, one of the things that uh, we did when I arrived with sort of new pair of eyes was to say, well, what's the Horniman's USP? What's it for? And most people could just say, well, the Horniman is a long list of things. Uh, collections of anthropology, natural history, musical instruments, gardens, live animals, butterfly house, etc. But I said, well, what, what is it though? What does it do? And we, we actually realised that we're the only museum in London which has got uh, nature and culture to be shown side by side. So we felt that was, puts us in a pretty unique position to look at interrelated examples of uh, interrelated issues of climate change, uh, social justice, and so on. One of the initiatives was to set up an environment champions community, which brings together like minded families, usually driven by the enthusiasm of the kids. To make changes in their lives to live more sustainably. Uh, and we've been supported through online resources and now post pandemic on site activities to form a community, a sort of self supporting community to work together. We've done all sorts of other initiatives as well. We planted a, a micro forest in the earlier part of the year uh, as a barrier for pollution and noise along the South Circular, which bounds uh, our site. Pollution is a particularly important issue for us because in our borough, Lewisham, which is London Borough of Culture this year, Ella Kissy Deborah was declared nearly 10 years ago as the first person where car pollution was cited as a cause of her death.
0: You know, having won an award for increasing diversity and getting different audiences, what are the challenges now for a museum in the 21st century? I mean, I was interested, for example, without wanting to kind of labour the point, you call yourself head of content as well, because I think that museums should talk more about their content, because it implies that you're not just a building, you're a digital entity as well.
2: I came in as chief executive, but in all my previous roles, including in Manchester, I really felt it was an important part of the director's role to steer not only the kind of strategic and financial direction of the organisation but also its direction in terms of its content. By that I don't mean just digital content, I mean the content of the exhibitions and the events and the programming. So artistic director is too vainglorious a title because we're not an art just solely an arts organisation but to see myself as steering kind of what we do as well as what we are was was very important and um, you're right, the, the great thing about museums is that they have these these buildings and in our case gardens and uh, living collections but we also have these heritage collections and the classic thing in museums is what you see is the tip of the iceberg and I very much wanted us to draw on all of our holdings uh, around global cultures and the natural environment to um, develop innovative programming both digitally and in, in sort of physical terms in terms of exhibitions and, and events. And It's all linked to that audience development side, because so, you know, the the task of diversifying our audience isn't done with the Art Fund Prize. We're, We're still in the early stages of making our audiences more representative of London's very diverse population.
0: So, I mean, it is a given, isn't it, that the traditional kind of construct of a museum, without wishing to get too kind of in the weeds about this, is attractive to white middle class people. Other communities find it difficult to kind of get through the door. So how do you start to open up a museum and say, actually, this is for everyone and it's for you as well?
2: Yes. Uh, Well, actually, my whole career has been focused on that. In fact, um, uh, just after I graduated, I did a Ph.D. which looked at why people didn't visit museums, which was to look at the barriers to visiting and it used to be thought oh well it's just because there's no museum nearby or there's an entrance charge or whatever but it's not it's um it's cultural attitudes people who see even free museums as not for us and that's because as you say ed museums are freighted with quite middle class uh, cultural uh, associations and uh, i suppose the best way to answer it is by referring back to what i did in 12 years at manchester it, it does take a decade or more and you have to look at every aspect of the museum so you have to look at who's employed in the museum particularly who you see uh, on the staff and and volunteers when you come into the museum do you see people like me as it were if you're looking for diverse audiences you look at have you have to look at how you communicate and and where you communicate and of course you have to look at your your programming and and what you put on you know it's all very well as me for a sort of white middle-class middle-aged museum director saying the Horniman's marvellous if you're a young Nigerian diaspora person in Lewisham, you know are you going to, am I going to be taken seriously so we use ambassadors who've got connections with different communities, who can act as advocates for us, we work closely with other organisations and individuals, I mentioned the hair exhibition there where one of the reasons for its success was its, its co-curation with different, uh, uh, different social groups in, in the community or communities I should say, our biggest diaspora group uh, locally is actually uh, not of Caribbean origin but of Nigerian origin. So we've done a lot of work with that Nigerian diaspora community including a couple of years ago um, some events around the 60th anniversary of Nigerian independence, working with Nigerian diaspora communities on things that are of interest to them and that is gradually paying dividends. One of the things we're slowly making progress on is diversifying our staff. So at the last census, and we will see the results of the sort of most recent census fairly soon but the overall London population was 40% black and minority ethnic. For the Lewishan, it's 50%. Our staff is currently 21% black and minority ethnic. And that's up 3% from uh, a couple of years ago. So each percentage point is quite difficult to to achieve, but we're moving in the right direction. Our board actually is more diverse than that. It's a board of uh, just 12 people. Uh, We've got, uh, well, in fact, 11 people at the moment. We've got three of those from minority backgrounds. So uh, it's... Absolutely. Now, volunteers are, I think, about 28% black and minority ethnic. So it's, it's, it's important to look at absolutely everywhere. It's a, it's a holistic thing. And part of it also is looking at... Because the Horniman is a colonial-era museum. Uh, Frederick Horniman was collecting in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And many of our local communities are quite suspicious of the Horniman as a kind of colonial thing, uh, Horniman's money was founded on the tea trade. I, I utterly reject this notion of wokeism. It's actually to do with good, doing good history and telling a, uh, a wider and more nuanced story of uh, our past.
1: You've obviously inherited all these, you know, a lot of quite eccentric and strange, extraordinary objects, but there it's so well updated. You know, I was just, for example, you know, looking at the Tibetan bit, and, you know, you've got all these extraordinary objects from Tibet. And then there's, alongside, there's this film of a current-day teenage rapper. What I saw was was the extraordinary interaction that was going on. And the kids were really seriously enthusiastic about everything. And the way you've done all the musical instruments, you know, you can go and listen to everything and and bash away at them. I mean, it's it's very, very interactive in a way I haven't seen in in other museums? We're mainly a
2: family audience and extraordinarily, they keep coming back again and again. I quite often meet meet people who say, well, we come every week, you know, so we're very much not a one-off destination for international tourists. We're a sort of much-loved community uh, asset where people come over generations. Grandparents often say to me, oh, I was brought here as a child by my own grandparents. So you're immediately going back six generations. And in relation to the World Gallery, where you were talking about the Tibetan stuff, um, it was very important when that gallery was done, uh, refreshed three or four years ago. In the 19th century, when anthropology collections were collected, most museums and collectors were doing it because they thought all of these cultures were going to die out as the West triumphed. And what what we're really showing is that these cultures are all very much alive and kicking.
0: Do you think museums should give stuff back?
2: That's not an easy and straightforward answer, as you might expect, uh, Ed. We, we have a repatriation policy which was um, set up in anticipation of requests for repatriation. Actually, because we thought we were likely to get a request for repatriation of some Australian Aboriginal material, which hasn't um, happened yet, but we we think it might. And as with most museums, uh, everything is taken on a case-by-case basis. I mean, I I don't actually know how many objects there are in UK museums, but the uh, Natural History Museum alone has 80 million specimens. Uh, I mean, a, a handful of objects have been given to communities of origin, apart from the Nazi spoliated work where there's a legal instrument to return stuff. But apart from that, very small numbers of objects, surprisingly small numbers of objects have been going back, have gone back. Uh, a good example is in the 1990s, Glasgow Museums gave back a Lakota. Uh, Native American Sioux Ghost Dance shirt, and th- there's always been this idea of oh, if you give stuff back, it'll open up the floodgates. Nothing else has been given back from Glasgow in the, the intervening thirty years. So you're probably uh, sort of touching on the Horniman Trustees' recent decision to give back title to the its a material, of, often called Benin bronzes. The Benin bronzes, the reason they get a lot of publicity is that they are a rather egregious example because they were uh, looted by a military incursion. So there was no choice. They, they were part of, uh, there were, they were uh, thousands and thousands of them were ripped off the wall of the Oberst Palace. Uh, they depict the history of the royal family uh, there. And so it was not too difficult for the trustees to say, yes, this was um, an extraordinary example of military looting. It shouldn't have happened and uh, it's the right thing to, to give them back. But there are not very many cases like that. So to say museums should give things back, it's not a straightforward question.
1: But I think the other thing about this collection, I know it was put together by, you know, wealthy team and all the rest of it, but the ethos was always very positive, wasn't it? No,
2: absolutely. I mean, um, he uh, was raised a Quaker by his parents. They were members of the... Remember, this is in the 19th century. They are members members of the Anti-Slavery Society, the Howard League for Penal Reform. Uh, Frederick Horniman acquired very significant wealth. I mean, he could have founded a museum, you know, like the old say, in central London, bearing his name. But he was very much a local man. His parents were in Croydon. And he said when he founded the Hornim, he wanted to bring the world to Forest Hill. And he did that in collections terms. And quite interestingly, now kind of the world in people terms has come to Forest Hill as well. So the, the two make a very good conjunction. I mean, he had, amassed his collection. He opened his own personal private family home to the public, originally three days a week, and it was so popular they decided they actually had to move house further up the hill Uh, and they demolished the house and he gave his own money to build the museum at, you know, cost of what would be today millions and millions of pounds and actually, unbelievably, bought up other properties, other villas along the the London Road and demolished them to extend the size of the gardens. So it was a massive act of kind of Quaker-based philanthropy, and I often remind people that philanthropy means, at root, love of people, and one of the great ethos of the Horniman, again cited by the Art Fund, is people say, as Ed said, either they've never heard of the Horniman and say, what's that, or they say, oh, I love the Horniman, and it's this sort of intergenerational love that, uh, that people have for the institution that's an absolute animating ethos for what we do today and um, we've got a a project at the moment called Nature and Love which is actually when you look at behavioural psychology around climate anxiety uh, people often tend to sort of stick their head in the sand saying well me doing the recycling isn't really helping the melting of the ice sheets or the destruction of the rainforest I don't really know what to do but and people become paralysed by inaction but Psychological research shows that one way you can galvanise people to action is by uh, appealing to their love of the next generation. We're embarking on a project to refurbish our natural history gallery and to open up a couple of new areas across the site uh, based on a positive action towards uh, climate uh, mitigation by calling on uh, the love of the next generation, who are the people going to have to cope with the planet and the the mess we've made, uh, as a motivation for action in the here and now.
1: I mean, You're doing a huge amount of restoration to the original amazing tower where Horniman had his office and uh, along the main building.
2: Well, the scaffolding you see at the moment actually is is to do with um, just repair work. Actually, we're very grateful to our funder, DCMS, for providing the funding for that because it's very hard to get funding for unsexy uh, building repairs. But, you know, uh, we've got to make sure these buildings are fit for the future. So no major changes there, but the changes will be in our... 60-year-old natural history gallery with the big inflated walrus um, which doesn't mention climate change or extinction um, uh, uh, and so we we feel that we need to update it uh, to do that and then in a couple of years time you'll also see up by the top of the hill where our butterfly house is uh, the transformation of our plant nursery that will become a sustainable gardening zone open to the public where people can see and experience practical demonstrations of how to garden and live more sustainably, whether you've got a window box or rolling acres. And down at the bottom of the slope at the other end of the site, we're transforming what's a very sort of rather sad uh, kickabout area, which is a former, former model boating pond, into a nature explorer's adventure zone, which will be a kind of play area, a nature-themed with a new children's cafe, and crucially, access into the half-mile long nature trail which almost nobody knows about because it's separated by a public footpath and you have to leave our site to get to it. It's it's London's oldest nature trail, uh, was formerly a railway line up to Crystal Palace and it's a, a, a wonderful place for encouraging interaction with nature and enhancing biodiversity and we'll be opening that to the public as I say in a couple of years
1: time. Well how exciting, I'm really ashamed that I hadn't been before but I really did love it. And all ages were just having such a nice time. What interests
2: me, sort of being more serious, is long-term engagement with with people. I like having that long-term relationship and that opportunity to really widen audiences. And that's very different from the big six central London museums, which who are, you know, Uh, like it or not, uh, international tourist destinations with very, very different audiences and very different challenges. So I'm very happy.
1: Oh, what a lovely note to end on. Thank you so much, Nick. And it really is, you know, listeners, if you haven't been, go now. It is pretty wonderful. Thank you very much. Cheers. That's nearly all we've got time for. But just before we go, we wanted to mention the Tetbury Music Festival, which runs from the 24th of September to the 2nd of October. His Royal Highness King Charles III remains a patron of the festival and there are concerts by world-class musicians, both classical and contemporary, including the clarinetist Julian Bliss, who shot to fame as a 12 year old prodigy who performed at the Queen's Golden Jubilee. It's a beautiful time to be in that part of the world with the National Arboretum at nearby Westonbirt Burke turning autumnal, so we recommend that very highly.
0: As usual, you can find us at countryandtownhouse.com. You'll find the latest digital edition of the magazine there, as well as our sister podcast, House Guest Carol Annette, who talks to some of the most fascinating and influential names in interior design. We love your feedback, so we want to hear from you if there's something you'd like to hear is profiling, please leave a comment or email us on charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk.
1: Next week, the Literary Book Festival season is about to kick off and we're going to be telling you about an extraordinary collaboration between the Hay Festival and the Lviv Book Forum. Our guest will be Sofia Cheliak, the prize-winning Lviv Book Forum program director who's on a mission to tell Ukraine's story to the world with the help of culture. The forum is only going to comprise 15 conversations but you'll be able to tune into most of them and they're going to be with some pretty hefty literary heavyweights from both East and West. So for example, you've got Margaret Atwood talking to Ukrainian psychologist Yuri Prokasko about art in the time of crisis. Yuval Noah Hari and Neil Gaiman talking to Ukrainian journalist Sevgil Musaeva on how stories can change the world. And Elif Shefak talking to Ukrainian novelist Katerina Kalitko about women's rights and free speech. And that's just for starters. So tune in next week to hear Sofia Chelyak tell us all about it. We look forward to seeing you then. Goodbye.